And now we're going to go to our scripture for today, to a very familiar story for a lot of us, but maybe not all. And it's going to be the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your own hired servants. And he arose and came up to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Good morning, everyone. My name is Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here at Regen. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, hopefully we can do that this morning. Our uh, lead pastor, Albert, is teaching at another church here in the area, and so I'm filling in for him, and we're going to pause the series that we've been in, which has been in the book of Nehemiah. If you haven't been around, we've been in the series on the, on the book of Nehemiah for a while. It's been really good, I think, for a lot of us. And if you are interested in going back and listening to those that are always available online via our podcast or more recently via video, you can check all that out at regenerationweb.com. Albert will be back with us next Sunday, but today we're going to pause and we're going to spend some time thinking about this really famous story, this prodigal son story. So before we do that, before we jump in, let's pause and pray together, and then we'll spend some time reflecting on this story. Father, as always, we are grateful for the time and the space to gather together, to worship, to take communion, to be together, to listen, and to be taught from your word. Pray that you would bless this time. 
that you would speak to us through a story that maybe for some of us is quite familiar. May you make it fresh and new, and may you speak good news to us through this story. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Scott McKnight is a fairly prolific modern theologian. He has an excellent little book called The King Jesus Gospel. And in this book, he writes, The church today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. The apostles and Jesus, however, were obsessed with making disciples. Now, if you're not quite sure what that means, let me share a quick story with you. I had the opportunity to lead a team to Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. And we stayed in Gulfport, Mississippi at a Baptist church. And this church was serving as a sort of host for teams from all over the country. And so what they did is they threw up tents all over their property, which had somehow miraculously been fairly unscathed by the storm. And again, they were hosting people from everywhere. And so while we were there, there were a variety of other teams. One of those teams was from Colorado. And for whatever reason, this particular team from Colorado had a number of characters on their team. And one of them was this really large and larger-than-life guy named Buddy. Buddy wore a NASCAR hat and a Confederate flag belt buckle, which told me that we had some different interests and values. But he was a really good guy, and he would come by our camp every night, and he would sort of share with us what their team was doing. He'd give us kind of their daily report. And among the things that he would share with us, he was really focused on a particular member of their team. And this guy, Buddy was quick to tell us, was not a Christian, but was still with their church on this mission trip. And this dude was like out of central casting for the biker stereotype. He had tattoos and leather vests and always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and bandanas and the handlebar mustache, the whole nine yards. And so Buddy was very concerned about this guy's eternal destiny. And every day he would sort of tell us kind of where that conversation was at. And Buddy told me that by the end of the week, by the end of the week, he was going to get him. That was a direct quote. In case you're not sure what that means, Buddy was essentially communicating that by the end of the week, he was going to make sure this guy made a decision one way or the other to follow Jesus. Now, in the middle of their week, this particular team took a break from their time in Gulfport and traveled to New Orleans. And so Buddy was kind of telling us about their trip, and he was really excited about this because he was going to have this guy in the van for several hours as a captive audience. <laughs> and so he was fairly sure that he was going to get him on this trip. So they go, and then they return. And Buddy comes back, gives us his daily report, and he's telling us about what they did, and you can just tell that he's bummed. You can just tell that he's bummed. And finally, he shares with us that biker dude has, in fact, become a Christian, gave his life to Jesus. And I'm thinking, that's great. Like, this is really good. Why are you so bummed? And Buddy informed me that somebody else <laughs> got him. And here's the quote. I'll never forget this conversation. He said, I thought I had another notch on my belt, but I guess it wasn't meant to be. Now, now, just in case you're concerned here, I'm not telling the story to make fun of Buddy, all right? I actually think that he was very sincere and well-meaning in his intent, but clearly a byproduct of this church environment that is focused on decisions, right? And not on discipleship. 
Now, if you've been around church for a while, I'm guessing that you've been exposed to this kind of thinking at some point. And in my experience, there's a lot of different outcomes to this focus on decisions over discipleship. But one of them is this, and this is one that I'm fairly concerned about, actually. It's that many, many Christians, as a result of this today, I think have a very deep ambivalence about what it means to share the good news of Jesus, this truth about their faith with other people. On the one hand, we know at some level that we're supposed to do this, right? That we're supposed to share with others about Jesus, but we don't want to be like that, right? We don't want to be creepy, and we don't want to think of people as notches on our belt. There are two significant studies that came out recently that examined the spiritual climate of our country. I don't know if you guys have seen these. They've sort of been floating around online. If you're someone who spends time online, you may have come across them. One of them has shown that the Bay Area is now considered to be the least churched part of the country. For a long time, it was Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, and then it shifted to Boston and the Northeast. And the most recent survey of this shows that it's actually now the Bay Area. What does this mean? It means that on any given Sunday, we have the lowest church attendance relative to the general population. And there are other studies that also show that we probably have the lowest number of people who are willing to self-profess as Jesus followers. So we now live in the least churched area of the country. Another study came out pretty recently, actually. There's been all kinds of feedback and response to this one. Uh, it was a Pew study that shows that pretty much Every form of Christianity in the country, with, by the way, the exception of the historically black church, but every form of Christianity has seen a decline in participation over the last five years. Now, all kinds of reasons for this. All kinds of reasons for this. I don't have time to really get into all of them today, but again, I think one of the outcomes of these trends that we see in our culture is this deep ambivalence about sharing our faith with others. I think a lot of us are even paralyzed when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus. How do we do it without being a weirdo, right? So this morning, what I want to do in reflecting on this very famous story, the story oftentimes called the prodigal son, it's a story that everyone from Dickens to Emerson have called the greatest short story of all time. And so I think that this is a story that speaks to us in a whole bunch of different ways. But this morning, again, my goal is really to do two things. One, remind us that Jesus is, in fact, good news. And then second of all, that it's good to share good news with people, with the people around us. Now, here's the deal. We share good news all the time, all the time. We are all evangelists, to use a churchy word, for something or maybe even for multiple things. We tell people all the time about books, movies, bands, apps, cool spots that we discover in the city, all these kinds of things. We have a good experience with it, and what do we do? We tell other people. We tell people about it. Let me share a deeply, deeply personal example. When it comes to sandals, I used to be a reef guy. Anybody here wear reefs, flip-flops? There we go. So from college until the time I met my wife, Amy, I bought pretty much the same exact style of reef sandal every couple of years. They had these leather straps and then that like classic black spongy reef platform that conforms and molds to your feet. I really liked them. They were great. I thought they looked cool and they were very, very comfortable and I was quite satisfied being a reef person. I was aware 
that there were other kinds of sandals out there, that there were other options. And I was very aware that there was one particular brand whose followers were especially passionate. I would even say they were a little bit arrogant and pretentious. <laughs> I'm talking about rainbow people. You with me? <laughs> I met Amy, who again is now my wife. My life was transformed in so many ways. But one of the ways is that she was a follower of the way of the rainbow sandal. <laughs> and she immediately began to share the gospel of rainbows with me. And over time, she won me over. And the thing that won me over is this. She had all these bold claims about how long a pair of rainbows would last. And so I started kind of doing the math on that. And I realized I could spend a little bit more on a pair of rainbows on something that could last five or more years or save a little bit of money now, but then have to buy another pair of reefs every couple of years, which was the pattern that I was living in. <laughs> so I went for it. I bought a pair of rainbows. I repented of my reef ways. And I've been wearing the same pair of sandals for seven years now. And clearly, <laughs> there we go, there we go. She was right. Listen to your wife. Now, like a good convert, I share the good news about rainbows, about my pair of rainbows with anybody who will listen to me. Now, most of you will know we lived in Boston for a while, and surprisingly, I had very few conversations about rainbows while living in Boston. Boston is one of the least sandaled regions of the country. But again, I will tell, and I will fight you over this too. I believe this is the best sandal that you could possibly buy. And we all have our thing, right? Whatever that might be. We do this all the time. We share the stuff that we're into, the things that we are passionate about, things that have an impact on us. We just share that stuff with other people. It's pretty central to how life works. When you are passionate about something, you share that with others. Now, having said all that, with all this in mind, let's turn our attention to the text, Luke chapter 15 again. To fully understand what's going on in the prodigal son story, we actually need to back up a couple of verses. So before Jesus tells this story about this son, he actually tells two other stories about lost things. The first is a story about sheep. The second is a story about a coin. Both of these stories follow a very similar pattern. Someone has a good amount of a thing or a possession, 100 sheep or 10 coins, and then they lose one of them. And so the owner of those things goes on this search, this all-out search, to try to find the lost thing. Now, at one level, that kind of makes sense, right? If we lose something, we tend to try to find it. No one really likes losing things. But in going to look for the lost thing, the rest of the things are put into jeopardy. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep behind. The woman who loses the coin spends all of her time and resources to find that one coin. And to the original hearers, for sure, and I think even to us, there is a sort of unreasonableness about the search. After all, it's just one sheep, right? What if, as you go look for that one sheep, someone comes and steals the 99 or even 10 of those other sheep? Then, okay, you found the one, but you lost 10. 
What if instead of spending her whole day looking for that coin, the woman just made something and sold it or picked up another shift at her job, whatever, made that money back in some other way? Wouldn't that have been a better use of her time? So it seems like maybe there are some better options here, but clearly these things that are lost are very, very important to the owner. And one way we know that is that when those lost things are found, there's this repeated frame in both of the stories. The owner says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, my coin, that was lost. And then Jesus just sort of, you know, lets the cat out of the bag as far as his main point here. He says, there's even more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And in the sheep story in particular, he adds this, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, have you ever wondered, what does God care about? What brings God joy? Jesus is making it pretty clear in these stories. It's this, it's lost things being found. And God cares about these things so much, he's even a bit reckless in how he conducts the search. Now, this brings us to this third story, this prodigal son story. There's a similar pattern that's followed in this story. Okay, there's a thing that gets lost. There's a search and there's a joyful reunion and party. But Jesus puts some pretty interesting twists into this third story. And this is actually a very classic teaching technique of the day. A teacher would tell three stories following a similar pattern, but then in the third, add some twists to it as a way to sort of point the audience towards the big idea that they were trying to communicate. So let's take a minute here and look at some of these twists. So first, this story is about a person, a son, a family. The other stories are about possessions. My apologies to those of you who are really big fans of sheep, but Jesus is trying to show us there's a difference here between what is lost in this story and those first two. Now this son, this is the second twist, this son leaves willfully. He leaves on his own accord. The sheep sort of mindlessly wanders off. The coin is actually probably lost because of the owner. But the son leaves on his own choice, and he leaves with what my mom would call a major tood. <laughs> I heard that a few times growing up. He tells off his family and his dad in particular incredibly disrespectful, willful, offensive, rude, openly rebellious. The son gets lost on his own. Third twist, there's a search, but the search has a different sort of texture to it. In the first two stories, there's this immediate, all-out response by the owner, right? They just go off looking for the sheep. The woman starts tearing her home apart looking for the coin, these almost reckless links that they go to find their lost thing. But in this story, you get the sense that the father's been anticipating this moment, right? As we read through it, you see that even when the son is a long ways off, he sees him and he takes off running to meet him. But he doesn't go after his boy when he first leaves. He sort of lets him go do this. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on in that scene. Culturally, a father wouldn't run wouldn't run towards their son, wouldn't run towards their openly rebellious son for sure. And so there's some really interesting things, I think, being communicated there about the father. But again, there's this sense that the father's been anticipating his son's return. 
but still a very different, much more passive sense of how this search is unfolding. Fourth twist, there's another character in the story, right? There's another son, an older son. And this son gets an opportunity to express their views on the situation, right? The 99 sheep don't get a voice, the nine coins don't have any lines of dialogue, but the son gets his say. And it's what he has to say and his presence in the story that makes the story really interesting. And we'll look at a few of those things here in just a moment. But one final twist. This story ends somewhat ambiguously. The other stories are very clear in their ending. The lost thing is found. There's a party. Jesus says there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. This story just ends. And it kind of leaves us hanging a little bit. And I think that ambiguity invites a response. And again, we'll look at that here in just a moment. Before we get to that, though, one more really, really important piece of context. The whole series of stories begins, how? With consternation by the religious authorities over who Jesus is spending his time with. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him, of course, being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this is not the only time that something like this happens in Jesus' life. It's a theme that runs all through Luke's account of Jesus. You can also find it in each of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But here's just a couple of examples from Luke. Luke chapter 4, this is Jesus' first public teaching moment. And he makes it very clear in this moment what his priorities are. Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying these are my priorities. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. One chapter later, Jesus has begun to assemble his team, the group that's going to be the closest to him and that he's going to entrust the moving forward of his mission to. And he picks to be on his team, not the top scholars, not the best and the brightest, not potential rabbis. He chooses fishermen and tax collectors. One of them is a guy named Levi. Levi is so excited to be on Jesus' team that he throws a raging party. Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. It's the exact same word as in Luke chapter 15. They grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Two chapters after that, Jesus continues this pattern of behavior and he's accused of a variety of things. Luke 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all their children. That was kind of like a hashtag boom moment of the first century. (laughs) Basically, he's saying, pay attention to what I am doing. These are my priorities. 
And those are just a couple of examples. And so when we get to Luke chapter 15, it's almost comical that the Pharisees and the scribes are still upset with Jesus about how he's spending his time. And it doesn't end there. If you move forward a couple more chapters in Luke, Jesus hangs out with a guy named Zacchaeus who happens to be a tax collector. He hears the same grumbling, and so he spells it out for them one more time. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So when we see Jesus hanging out with sinners and other questionable characters, this is not sort of a diversion from his teaching ministry. This is not him getting distracted from healing people. This is why he came. This is absolutely central to his mission and his purpose. Jesus did not come to huddle up religious folks. He came for the poor and the sick, for those who had been excluded, stigmatized, left out, beaten up. He came for the lost sheep and the lost coins and the lost son. And that's why he tells these three stories and this last story that we call the prodigal son in particular. And in doing so, I think he accomplishes two very important things. First, Jesus is communicating something very significant about God. We already talked about this a little bit, but again, he's showing us what God's priorities are. This is what God cares about. This is what brings God joy, lost things being found. God wants the prodigals to come home. He wants his family to be reunited. And when they are, he is not just pleased. He is ecstatic. He is ecstatic. And then second, I think Jesus is also revealing something very, very significant about us. Because how we react to these stories, what they reveal about God, gives us, I think, tremendous insight into the condition of our own hearts. Do we rejoice in God's inclusion of the excluded, in God's reckless searching? Or do we grumble about God's prioritizing of sinners? Now, here's the fascinating thing to me about this final story. There's another reason why this third story has a different texture, and in particular, why this search feels differently than in the first two stories. And it's because the one who was supposed to do the searching didn't do it. And this is not a secret, hidden truth in this story. The Pharisees and the scribes and everyone else sitting there, as they listened to Jesus tell these stories, would have picked up on this immediately. They all would have been surprised by the recklessness of the shepherd, the determination of the woman to find her coin. They would have been absolutely disgusted by the younger son's behavior. They would have been scandalized by the graciousness of the father, and they would have asked the question, what's up with the older son? Why didn't he go after his brother? Because that's what he was supposed to do. That's what he was supposed to do. That ambiguous ending to this story where Jesus is sort of speaking for the father who says to the older son, everything that I have is yours and it always has been. So your brother who was dead and is now home, who was lost and is now found, we had to celebrate. It was right for us to celebrate this. And then the story just kind of ends and you're like, well, what happened? <laughs> 
Jesus ends the story, I think, this way on purpose because he wants the Pharisees and the scribes to sit with this truth. You guys are the older brother. You should be here at this table sitting with me as we hang out with these sinners. You should be seeking these lost brothers along with me. Now here's the final truth that I think Jesus wants us to understand from these stories. What he is also communicating here is this. Jesus is our true older brother. Jesus is the one who goes after us. Well, we were all lost. It was Jesus who went looking for us. Who did the work to bring us back to the family, back to the party, back to the father. That's the really good news in this story. And I think, again, this story speaks to us very much today. This ambiguous ending invites us to ask the question, who am I in this story? To the younger brothers, Jesus' invitation is, come home. There's a party waiting. There's a feast here. Come on home. You are welcome back. And at the risk of a quick plug here, this is what we will do on Saturday at Lake Temescal at our baptism celebration, is come alongside people and celebrate this decision to come home and that's why we want it to be a party and a celebration because it is and it's how God feels about it and if you are thinking about or still on the fence about getting baptized we would love for you to be baptized on Saturday so come talk to me or Stefan afterwards and we can make sure that you're a part of that now to the older brothers Jesus is also inviting you to the party and in particular to the search to join him in this mission to find lost things. Now, in my experience, I've noticed that sometimes people are reluctant to label themselves as older brothers. So I just want to push on this particular one here for a moment before we close. I want to ask this question. If a Pharisee got a hold of your calendar, would they grumble about how you are spending your time and who you are spending your time with? Would there be anything in there to scandalize a Pharisee. A classic mark of older brother tendencies is that we just fill up our schedule with Christian activities. And we have our Monday Bible study, our Tuesday accountability group, our Wednesday home group, our Thursday meeting with the ministry team that we serve on. Friday we go out to dinner with other church friends. Saturday we go hiking with that other home group. Sunday we're here all day. Now, let me be very clear. Community is incredibly important. And I think it's impossible to follow Jesus without being connected to and plugged into community with other believers. But do not schedule your way out of the mission, out of the party. Now, confession time. This is something that I've needed to hear my own self. I think if a Pharisee were to look at my calendar and my schedule, they would be quite pleased with how I'm spending my time. So I'm preaching as much to myself here as to anyone Just last night, we had our neighbors over for dinner. It was the first time in five months that we've had a neighbor over for dinner. And I was thinking about that in relation to this talk this morning. And really, that was all about my wife and my daughter. They're way better at this than I am. And so again, I think I need to hear this as much as anyone. I think we need to make it a spiritual discipline to have time and space in our lives to go out after work with our coworkers, play on a team with people who don't go to our church, strike up a conversation with those parents that we always see at the park, invite our neighbors over for dinner. Whatever those things are, those should be regular occurrences for us. 
Now, one final thought here before we close in prayer. This is for us as a community because this is not just an individual thing. This is something we should be doing together as a church. Christian educator William Denny is famous for saying the church is the only organization in the world that does not exist for the benefit of its own members. Another sure sign of older brother tendencies is thinking that the church exists to meet my needs. So as a church, we need to be vigilant about combating that kind of thinking, and we need to always plan and organize and structure ourselves around those who are not here yet, even though that's somewhat counterintuitive. The church is to be the body of Jesus to a broken and hurting world, a world that is crying out for hope and love and redemption and, dare I say, regeneration. It is good to share Jesus with our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. So again, my hope this morning is that we reclaim a little bit of a vision for what sharing the good news of Jesus should look like, that it's less about notches on our belt and much more about serving and loving and inviting and simply being with people the way that Jesus was with people. One quick story. We have had Jen and Sasha, this team from the Pace Ministry, with us here for the last five months, and they've been working in local schools and just doing some amazing work. If you were here on May 21st, we had a night to celebrate that and hear some of their stories. One of the best stories, though, came out of that actual night. One of the teachers from one of the schools that they're at was here, and she got into a conversation afterwards with Jen the PACE team leader, and then with Christina, who's a teacher at that school and has done an amazing job in helping us get connected to that campus. And I wasn't a part of this conversation, but from what I understand, they spent some time talking about how that involvement at that school is starting to slowly change her perception of Jesus followers. And the big quote was something to the effect of, this is the teacher speaking, I thought Christians were just judgmental weirdos, but you guys really love people well. And I just think, yes. Yes, we should be having those kinds of conversations and those kinds of stories all the time. So decisions, they're important. There is a decision moment that I think is really, really important. But following Jesus is more about a way of life, and it's about inviting people into that way of life, a life that models the true older brother character of Jesus. So a couple questions. Do you believe that Jesus is good news? Have you trusted that Jesus is your true older brother who has gone to incredible lengths to bring you back to the Father? And then are you ready to join him in this search? Let's pray. God, thank you that you care about and love people so much that while we were still a long ways off, deeply, deeply lost, you sent Jesus to find us and to be our true older brother. God, I pray for those of us here this morning who maybe identify with the younger brother. Give us the courage to come home and to accept your offer of invitation into this party, into this feast, into this abundant life. And God, for those of us who identify with the older brother, may we join you in searching for lost things. May we make it a discipline to leave time and space in our lives to connect with people who are far from you. And then, God, as a church, may we model that. May we be a place where people who are far from you can find hope and 
love and reconciliation, and new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.